0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So, um, today we begin this series. And we use the word blessed quite often. How often have you all heard the word blessed, right? Um, Not that often, it's more of a southern term, I think, in the United States. And sometimes we say it, and the meaning of bless can be very ambiguous, like, you know, bless her heart. And you're really basically undercutting her opinion and saying something totally contrary to bless her heart. And then you've got preachers in the United States. I don't know if this is occurring in Europe, or I know it's occurring in other continents, but. Uh, kind of who say, God wants to bless your life, right? And you can have the blessed life. And what they mean by that is you can become rich. And then they go on to say, this is how you become rich, by tithing to my ministry. That's the blessed life. I think we're going to find something a bit different in what Jesus says, because we're going to take his words for it, what the blessed life looks like, okay? And we're going to take his words from probably one of the most famous pieces of literature in all of human history, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at the Beatitudes at the beginning of that, these blessed statements. There are nine of them. We're going to only cover four of them in these four weeks. And these are going to be our three points that we're going to have. Um, We're going to cover them one at a time. But the three points are three words I don't remember ever hearing a sermon When I was a kid, I went to church a lot, Okay, Um, always have. And I cannot recall a sermon growing up that used any of these words for what Jesus was saying and what the life is about. But these are the three words that we're going to have. And that is that Jesus' words are offensive, Jesus' words are counterintuitive, and Jesus' words are revolutionary. Those were three words that were never used in a sermon in the church I grew up with. But I think they characterize what Jesus is getting at in this text. And first of all, we're going to look at the fact that these words in the Sermon on the Mount are offensive. Okay? They are offensive. So don't think that the Beatitudes, maybe you've seen them on a plaque on a wall in a house somewhere, you know, cross stitched nicely. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you know blah, 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 blah. And you go like, aren't they nice? They are not nice. They are shocking. They are counterintuitive, revolutionary, but they are offensive. They're shocking. I mean, who can consider being poor? Whatever way you want to define poverty, whether it's spiritual, emotional, uh, financial, psychic poverty, whatever way you want to say, well, try to define what Jesus is saying when he says poor in spirit. Who says that's a good thing? You know? That doesn't sound like a good thing at all. What are you telling me? And, the, and uh, that's the first word in the Sermon on the Mount, and it doesn't get any easier after that. Consider the fact that who believes that really loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is the way to live? I even see many Christian leaders across the world and in the United States, sadly, who believe in pummeling their enemies and pilloring them, maybe not physically, but definitely verbally, and assaulting them and castigating them and calling them the worst things, you know, like othering them to dehumanize them in order to get my point across and to assert my political power. Do you understand? That's going on even within Christianity today. And they might say, well, you know, that's the only way we can get our godly agenda done in the United States. This is the way it really works in the world. Well, then what is Jesus talking about? Stuff that doesn't work? Is he talking about just ideals that don't really matter? Or is he talking about how life really can be, and that it does make a difference in this world? That's the question you have to answer in this. You know? Um, but these words are offensive. Uh, fascinating. Um, I read an article. I could probably send it to you all if you want. It's not too long. Um, Virginia Stems Owen was an English teacher. And 30 years ago, she's an English professor at Texas A&M University, which if you know Texas A&M, it's a pretty, um, it's not University of Texas, OK? It's more of a conservative kind of Bastion, you know, lots of um, uh, ROTC is big there, all that type of stuff, right? She had in her class, her freshman literature class, when she was talking about rhetoric, she did an experiment and had the students read the Sermon on the Mount and then to respond to it. And she was surprised. This is back in 1987, I believe. I'd say the responses today would even be stronger. This is what she found from the the students at Texas A&M. She was astonished. One student wrote, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. Another said, it's hard to believe something that was written down 2,000 years ago. Another said, the stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. You can tell they're not the best English writers either. But um, beside the point, she wasn't correcting for those things at this point. Um, Another said, I did not like the essay, The Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. And then finally, someone even went more pointed, the things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Now, she said, those things were probably better. At least they took it at face value. There were other students who tried to dismiss the text and what it was saying. For instance, one said, many believe that the sermon should be taken literally. I believe, on the other hand, that because the scriptures have been interpreted from so many different languages, we should use them as a guide, not a law. Another fallback is that certain beatitudes are irrelevant to current lifestyles. Loving your enemies, for example, is obviously not observed by the majority today. So she was kind of shocked because this is, in a sense, Texas A&M students, um, Texas, you know, Bible beltish, and this was what her students were saying. Her conclusion and this is on a slide the rest of it you'd have to i can give you the article the bible remains offensive to honest ignorant ears just as it was in the first century for me that somehow validates its significance i like that Now, I'm spending so much time on this is because we're familiar with these words, and we pass them over and think it's no big deal. And yet what Jesus is speaking about in the Beatitudes and in the rest of the sermon is really offensive to me and the way I would like to run my life. I really don't believe that life should, it works that way. I mean, it, Doesn't seem to be working that way in society, that the poor in spirit is the kingdom, that blessed are the meek, that they're going to inherit the earth. Right? What? No, 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 no. They get trampled on all the time. What are you talking about? Now, here's the truth. I want other people to act like this. I want them to love their enemies. I want them to bless instead of curse. I want them to be humble. I want them. To not um, broadcast how wonderful they are, you know, but pray in secret and stuff. But I want to live my life a different way. When I face a threat or I want to claim victimhood and yell and scream and protest, when I get threatened and my comfort level gets threatened, I just I want to go out and fight for my right and my party to do what I want to do. So these words are offensive to us. And I don't think Jesus is trying to make them less offensive or nice little words that you just go like, okay. They attack my sensibilities and my desire to live my life the way I want. Because I think Jesus knows I need that. Because the way I want to live my life is going to go in a whole different direction. And Jesus needs to rescue me from that. So they're offensive, but they're also counterintuitive, Okay. Um, No matter how I want to try to dismiss these words, Jesus actually means what he says. Have you ever heard, you know, Jesus means what he says. Now, you have to still figure out sometimes what he means by what he says. But he means what he says. And not only does he mean what he says, he lives out the words that he says. He actually lives this way, Okay. He is the meek. He is the peacemaker. He is the one who is persecuted for righteousness sake. You can look through these, and you will find that he is the one who's actually living this way and calling us into it. Now, they're counterintuitive, though, because I think sometimes you look at words like this and say, "Okay, this is what I got to do to get into the kingdom. So I'm going to have to figure out how to become poor in spirit. So I'm gonna have to try to empty myself and not look at myself and not think about myself. And every time I try to not empty myself, you know, every time I try to not look at myself, I'm looking at myself to see if I'm not looking at not do you understand what I mean? So I keep trying to do it's like I can't do what I'm trying to do, and I'm trying to do it, and if I can get, but Jesus didn't speak these words (laughs) to say these are the prerequisites. get into the kingdom. Here are the rules, and if you follow these rules, then you enter into the kingdom. What's counterintuitive in these words is that they are not a prescription that you have to fulfill. They are a description of being in God's kingdom. This is what it means. Blessed are you. You are in the kingdom, and this is how you get to display what the kingdom looks like. Try to live the conventional way of looking at these statements, and you realize how impossible it is to follow any of them. Because they're not laws for you to follow to get in. They are not a prescription, but a description. They describe what you've already received. Because he said these words when he looked at his disciples. Okay, These words, he looked at his disciples. And um, we're going to get to the actual words of our text in just a minute. Okay, So Raymond Brown puts it this way. Because the word blessed, tries we really try to understand that. We'll understand what he's saying. Um, Raymond Brown says the Greek word makairos, and it's cognate, meaning blessed or happy, is not a part of a wish and not to invoke a blessing. Rather, they recognize an existing state of happiness and good fortune. In other words, the word blast means you're already there. That's counterintuitive because I feel like I have to achieve something to get there. And Jesus says, I'm giving this to you in these words. Jesus isn't making up stipulations. He's telling you what the kingdom of God is like and that you've already entered it. Frederick Hauck writes, Makairos o- o- refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy which accrues to human beings from the share in the kingdom they already have. So that's what these words say. This is what the blessed life looks like, because you're already in the kingdom. These nine beatitudes are also not nine different classes, like if you're like, I happen to be a peacemaker, so I'm in. And you happen to be meek, so you're in. And you happen to be um, you know, pure of heart, so you're in. No. They're actually just a holistic description of what it means to live into the kingdom. We're going to take four of these. And uh, we're going to look at the first one today, OK? So the first one comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice in these words, Jesus said Not to the whole crowds, but he spoke directly to his disciples. So everybody thinks he's shouting to 5,000 people at once on the top of a mountain. Um, Maybe. But he specifically is addressing those who have been following him for a while and say, you're blessed, you're poor in spirit, and yours is the kingdom. But what does Jesus mean by poor in spirit? Okay. He's not saying anything differently, by the way. This is not like a whole new revelation. The prophets have been speaking this and saying this quite a while. For instance, Isaiah chapter 66, this is what the prophet said. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And the word for humble and contrite in spirit, in some translations, for instance, King James uses poor and contrite. And the word, the Hebrew word anah actually does mean poor, impoverished, troubled, empty, afflicted, humble. The term poor in spirit, often the word poor, sometimes in the Old Testament, the word poor does mean economically poor. And I'll, I dare say poorer people in our society realize their neediness a lot easier than wealthy people do. And maybe that's why Jesus said it's very difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. because It's like trying to put a camel right through the eye of a needle. That's how difficult it is because people hold on. They think when they are, quote, blessed, which I don't know sometimes if wealth is that kind of a blessing, okay? But when they are wealthy, they can rely on their wealthiness and the, I made this money and I've got it and it's all mine, and they stop seeing their emptiness and their neediness and that it's all a gift from God. But when you are economically poor, you kind of understand that's not just economics. It's also spiritual. And you are reliant and dependent on others. In this passage, though, in Isaiah, he is saying, you know, God, who's high and lofty, he's created everything. The temple that you think he dwells in, and you've got to have this magnificent building for him to pay attention to you, no. Not at all. Instead, the one I seek out is the one nobody else actually thinks I do. And that, counterintuitively, is the poor in spirit, the humble, the contrite, the one who knows he, she, has needs, is empty, has nothing of its own. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In short, I love what Arthur McGill says. He puts it this way in one of his books. Um, He says, in short, in the kingdom of Jesus, we always begin with neediness, we always live outward toward neediness, and we always end in neediness. It's worth thinking through for a while, okay? And you might go like, ooh, I don't like that at all. That's exactly what we're talking about. Now, what does it mean? You start in the kingdom of God by declaring your bankruptcy. And what do I mean by that? It's kind of metaphorical, but um, most people, human beings naturally default to, and most religion defaults to the idea that one day I might stand before God or before a divine tribunal of some type or before a moral code um, at the end of my life. In fact, uh, this last week, I did an interview for my Contemporary World Religions class um, with a religious leader here in the community. And he truly does believe that one day, you're going to have scales of justice in front of you. And all your good deeds will be put on one side of the scale, and all your bad deeds on the other side of the scale. And then God will judge you based on your works how many good ones you have compared to how many bad ones. And now the stipulation was, but even if the good outweigh the bad, God can decide to put you in hell anyways. Seriously. because And who are, who's going to argue with God? God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is all-knowing. He knows much more than, and there will be people who will argue with God about, wait a minute, but I'm good. And he'll say, not good enough. And I'm going like, OK. Well, tell me, you know, like I'm thinking of my scales, you know, my life. Just, just you know, and I'm going like the good stuff. Hmm. Um, what's a good thing to put on the good side, you know, I asked. And he basically, well, it's got to be something that you do for other people and for God's glory, right, and has to be the right motives and not selfish at all. And I'm thinking, oh, well, <laughs> for me, that about, that, limits every, that eliminates everything. I, can't, I I told them I can't think of one thing in my life that I would put up to God's scrutiny that I've done anything perfectly, selflessly for His glory and for other people and not for myself. Even like going on mission trip to Haiti, you know, like I did with Helen uh, a year and a half ago or so. Do you think I went to Haiti just because I was being so selfless and just? No. I mean, helping others out makes me feel good. That's a selfish motive right there. And then I can think, look at what I've done. And all of a sudden, it just destroys the goodness of that in one sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so I turned to this religious leader and I said, you know what? I can't think of one thing that I can put on this side of the scale. That's how everyone actually is. And it's so hard for any of us to admit that. That's what it means to enter the the kingdom of heaven. You enter bankrupt. You realize even your good stuff you've done isn't good. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah chapter, I think, 55 or so. All our righteousness. Now, he didn't say all my badness. He said even my righteous stuff are filthy rags dirty you know stinky socks in a sense you know what i mean things that are putrid and i want to throw away paul says in philippians i'm throwing, this is extemporaneous by the way so i don't have a slide for this uh, just let me, paul in philippians said you know everything that i considered gain good i now throw on this side loss scubalon it's like it smells like manure and i'm getting rid of it just to know Jesus Christ. That's spiritual bankruptcy. No one, and I mean no one, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, you name St. Augustine, you name somebody old, new, Peter, Paul, none of them enter the kingdom of God, stay in the kingdom of God based on the scales of justice and that they've got anything on the good side to tell God, hey, you got to let me in. Okay? I can't even talk about my poverty saying, hey, I'm empty, God. Look, that's a good thing. That's not a good thing. My emptiness is not a good thing. It's just what it is. That's where we're at. That's counterintuitive. But I'll tell you, it's revolutionary as well. Just absolutely revolutionary. Because I do not enter the kingdom of God on my own, I can't get into the kingdom of God on my own goodness. I don't get into the kingdom of God on my emptiness. I don't get into the kingdom of God on my badness. I get into the kingdom of God based on God's grace and the fact that the king comes to me and brings me the kingdom. I don't get to the kingdom. The kingdom comes to me. And the king was standing right before the disciples in these words and said, blessed are you Okay? In the Gospel of Luke, actually, the Sermon on the Plain, which is very much like the Sermon on the Mount, he has some of these beatitudes, and he says in those, blessed are you who are poor. So he's pointing directly to his disciples and saying, you know what? You're already blessed. You know why? Because you're with me. The kingdom is revolutionary because the king is a revolutionary king. He turns everything upside down and inside out. What Jesus says here changes everything, because Jesus fills up these words. I don't know if you realize that you can read through these and you start saying, wait a minute, who's, Jesus is the one I know who was poor in spirit. You go like, wait a minute, he's the son of God. Do you realize he emptied himself of everything all of his divine nature, yes, he had divine. He was c- totally contingent and relying every day on his father, and he was economically poor. He was economically poor. Do you? He didn't have a penthouse in Palestine, right? There was no bank accounts. There was no IRAs, no 401ks, no 403bs, no retirement plan for him. He was reliant every day. He didn't have a place to lay his head, he says. He was totally dependent, poor in spirit, always looking to the Father for every good thing. He didn't have a degree from a rabbi university, and he didn't have rank among the Romans. He chose the life of absolute poverty, and not simply economic or social but also spiritual. You see, the cross is the place where Jesus empties out himself, pours out his own blood. There's nothing left to his name. His reputation is destroyed in the face of the world. He's considered scum and a curse, derided, no friends, no one, and even God his Father turns his back on him. Absolutely, he becomes nothing to give you everything. That's revolutionary. Paul even uses the metaphor of economics when he describes this great exchange that Jesus does for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, "'For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, "'so that you by his poverty might become rich.'" To me, that's amazing. So does Jesus actually then say, OK, you're going to be rich? What does rich mean now? Does it mean, oh, you'll never have any needs? No. I, I, I think that McGill quote I gave before, you know, you begin needy in the kingdom, you remain needing in the kingdom, and you end up needing in the kingdom, because that's all by God's grace. Do you realize? That means every day it's a day of grace. A day of grace. He promises that he will be with us in our needs, in our neediness. No, that's what's radically revolutionary. You do not have to have quote a storehouse of stuff before you can give and serve in in this world. You know, and you will find out that actually people who are the billionaires and trillionaires that we have in this world, often give a smaller percentage than those who have less, who give out of their need rather than out of their plenty. And that is revolutionary. No, the blessed world, the blessed life is not a life of accumulation. You know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, if I live my life to just get a bunch of stuff and have a bunch of experiences and do all that, then I'm going to have this wonderful life, and that's the blessed life. When you're thinking like that, you're thinking like the God of this world and not the God of the scriptures and not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the one who secures all things and holds on to them and will not share is not God, but Satan, And the goal of life, let me tell you, although a lot of Americans believe the goal of life is to become independent, to be self-sufficient, and to need nothing from anyone, that's not the blessed life. The blessed life is that we get to live in community where you may need me and I definitely need you. And I'm able to share my neediness. And I receive from you, and you receive from me. And we start living out these words. What a revolutionary idea that the blessed life looks totally ordinary. That he doesn't remove my needs before I can help others. But rather, he might even intensify my needs for others. That we enter God's kingdom needy, we live in God's kingdom needy, and we stay in God's kingdom forever, dependent, that's called grace. And the eternal life will be one day where it's like, wow, God, you keep giving, and you keep giving, and you keep giving. Wow, isn't that amazing? That's what we thank him for. Uh, Arthur McGill puts it this way in his book. Um, Dying unto life. He says, whether people serve themselves or serve others is not their power to choose. This is decided wholly in terms of the kind of world in which they think they live, in terms of the kind of power that they see ruling the roost. If you believe the power of self expending love in Jesus Christ is the reason that this world exists and the direction it's going, you're going to live these beatitudes out. But if you believe that the real way the world works is by power and accumulation demanding your rights, you're going to live a whole different way. So he says, the issue lies at the level of the God they worship and not in the kind of person they want to be. In New Testament terms, they live or die according to the king that holds them and the kingdom which they belong. And Jesus says, I'm holding on to you. I give my life to hold on to you. I do everything for you. You have a blessed life because I'm yours and you are mine. And you get to live like I do now in revolutionary ways in this world. I think it was um, Martin Luther who was uh, one of the uh, starters or initiators of the uh, Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago. Um, towards the end of his life, within the last week of his life, one of the last words that were recorded that he said were these, we are beggars, that's for sure. He was basically saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He knew that his life started by God's grace, it was sustained by God's grace. It ended with God's grace. There was no other way to do it, and he could totally. There was no better position to be in than to be somebody who's empty and let God fill him every day. And then, not to say I have to have this much before, but to just live a life of abundance by abundantly giving and serving and caring ordinary life, and that was revolutionary for him, and I think it is for us as well. These are great words. You can, you do, actually, have the blessed life. Yours is the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, this day, we thank and praise you for all that you're doing. We pray, Lord God, that... um, we'd understand your words, what a blessed life really looks like, and that we have it right now. We can have it right now by trusting you, abandoning all sense of our own righteousness or goodness, and relying solely and completely on your goodness and grace. We pray, Lord God, that you'd be working in this time, that in our lives, in this world, at this time, you would teach us the blessed life, I know, Lord, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We have had so many issues. There's so much social tension, racial turmoil in our nation right now. But even in the midst of all these things, you can open our eyes and our hearts to see that we are already blessed and we can live um, even in our neediness to serve others and that you don't want us to be any different than relying on you. Teach us how wonderful it is, how good and pleasant it is, Lord, to be interdependent with others in the body of Christ, in your kingdom, and to rely on you as our king. We do lift up to you, Lord, those in their needs today, whatever they happen to be. For Pastor uh, John Zender, who is still hospitalized with COVID-19, for Andy Blankenship undergoing chemotherapy in our um, congregation for uh, those who are facing isolation, for those, Lord, who are facing difficulty now that many unemployment benefits might be drying up at the moment and, Lord God, um, they can't find (laughs) in our economy right now another job. Lord, we pray that you would teach us how we can uh, serve out of our neediness into their neediness and we can receive back as well, that we can live that life. We pray, Lord, that you'd bring healing, that you'd bring renewal, that you'd bring a revaluation of all values for us, Lord, through your word, that we understand what it means to be blessed and a blessing to others, Lord God. And we do pray, Lord, too, that in a few moments, as this service concludes for those online, that, they, that you prepare their hearts to come back on Zoom uh, for communion and that you would prepare our hearts here in person as well to receive the goodness that we are empty of ourselves and we receive your full righteousness, Lord Jesus, your divine presence into our lives in a very special way, Lord God. So all these things we lift up to you this day, um, knowing it's good, it is wonderful, it is truly being blessed to be yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.